0: Support for the interchange comes from Schneider Electric. Schneider Electric is the leader of digital transformation in energy management and automation. We live in this new energy landscape that we talk about on this podcast all the time. It's upending the entire power ecosystem, and it's driven by the three Ds, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitization. Schneider Electric is at the forefront of all of those, particularly with its microgrid offering. It's developed more than 300 microgrids in North America. If you want to learn more about those microgrids and Schneider Electric's business, go to www.schneider-electric.com slash microgrid, or just follow the link in the show notes. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the connected power plants of the future with smart trackers and the TrueCapture advanced control software. It optimizes performance, increases energy yields, and reduces costs for developers. NextTracker has more than 30 gigawatts of resilient and intelligent solar systems installed, delivered, or under fulfillment across six continents. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. I am joined by my co-host, Shale Khan, who's managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. He's out in the Bay Area. Shale, how are we doing? Heavy time out there.
1: Yeah, not great, to be honest with you. Uh, as we are taping right now, we have, I think, the worst air quality, at least that I've seen here where I live since uh, since I moved back to the Bay Area like four years ago. So um, not, not the best times here in California.
0: Your voice sounds pretty scratchy. Is that due to the smoke?
1: Uh, yeah, it is actually. Well, I mean, it's partially your fault, which is uh, we have these like indoor air filters that we are, you know, running at full speed. At, in our house. And so, most of the time, the air quality inside our house is fine, uh, except that for the audio quality gods, you've forced me to turn off my air filter. So, I'm going to blame my scratchy voice on you.
0: <laughs> uh, it's a terrible situation out there. It, 15% of the US population is out there in the West, and the smoke from the forest fires in Oregon and Washington and California are basically blanketing the entire West. So, A terrible situation for a lot of people out there. So please stay safe. This week, we are not talking about wildfires. We are not talking about climate change. We are talking about a curiosity in the financial markets. It's the clean tech SPAC attack. The market for initial public offerings dropped way down earlier this year. Or did it? There has been a surge in activity in a different kind of IPO, a special purpose acquisition company, or a SPAC. It's also known as a reverse merger or blank check companies. There are lots of names for this, uh, but we'll call it a SPAC. These are shell companies listed on exchanges with a mission to buy other private companies and convert them into public ones. According to a tally from Barron's, there have been 70 IPOs through this method in 2020, with proceeds totaling $27.7 billion. It's creating a path for little-known pre-revenue clean tech companies to get access to public markets. Does all this frothiness make sense, and why is it happening now? We first started talking about SPACs back in June when we covered the hype around hydrogen trucking company Nicola Motor Company, and... There has been a ton of activity since then, which Shale has been tracking. Now, Shale, before we survey the new activity, can you just follow up on my description of SPACs and tell people how they work? Sure. So basically the way that it works is um, somebody, a SPAC sponsor,
1: um, raises a bunch of money to create a publicly listed company that is just like you said, it's called a blank check company, or it's a, it's a shell company, basically, there's nothing to it, but its mandate is that it has two years typically to go off and find and acquire a private company um, to convert that company into a public company. And there are some parameters around that. And then often there's a, what they call a pipe as part of the process, a public investment in a private entity. Um, But the short version of it is uh, you, you go public, if you're a private company and you go through a SPAC process, you go public. Without the traditional process, you don't have to do the same kind of a roadshow. You know, there isn't the same offering to a small number of investors who get in at the IPO price, and so there are a lot of things about it that uh, appeal to companies. Um, particularly, there's this increasing recognition that the traditional IPO process is really built to benefit very few well-connected investors. Um, because typically, what you try to do in the traditional IPO process is go public and then have the the stock price spike immediately upon um, going public. But really, that only benefits those who bought in at the IPO price, which which no you know normal investor has access to. So that's the way that it works. But it also means that there's a lot less rules placed on the company that is going to go through the SPAC, um, and so the you know sort of negative argument on the SPAC side is that it's an opportunity for um, companies to go public without requiring the same amount of diligence that you would see otherwise.
0: SPACs are not a new thing. They were a tool that was used in the 80s. They had a resurgence in 2007-2008 time frame, and now they're back. Early on, they had a reputation of being seedy blank check companies and then Big banks started getting involved and bringing tech companies public this way. Why are we seeing the resurgence in this SPAC method now?
1: I think in part it's because the market has been particularly strong. Um, You know, we saw overall equity prices collapse in the you know early days of covid but they recovered surprisingly fast particularly tech stocks have you know outperformed the market substantially and so indices are you know up and here near record highs and so um there's a belief that you know if you if you end up in the public markets now um there might be a lot of excitement around your business we should we'll talk more about the types of companies that have been doing us back but um you know, there, there's a belief anyway that the market will hold up for you, or at least that's the hope. Um, the other thing that, you know, is hard to actually suss out how much of this is is having an effect and how much it's not. But we should talk about it, which is the Robin Hood effect, um, which is that. Companies like Robinhood, in particular, have made retail investing really, really easy and really, really cheap. And there's um, some evidence that it is causing a boon in retail investing, perhaps coincident with the fact that a lot of people are at home and able to day trade because they have very little else to do, or they're sitting at their computer at home all day. And um, the the general Robinhood effect is believed to be: hypey type stocks are performing extremely well. Tesla would be your Classic example of this, and Tesla has had a really ridiculous um, bull run this year. Nikola also might be your second best example of this, and so um, because we're seeing the success of that kind of stuff, it creates more frothiness for the next wave.
0: Now, these specs generally invest in technology companies, and it turns out that clean tech companies are an important part of the activity this year. So we've seen, I think, seventy. IPOs, another twenty-four filed to IPO in the near future. That's according to a tally from Barons, and you've done your own tally, and you found that there are ten SPACs that are directly relevant to clean tech or the energy transition. So, what did you find? Yeah, so I went through and looked at all the SPACs that have been announced. This is worth
1: important to note. These are SPACs that have been announced, not necessarily SPACs that have been completed. Um, but I found 10 that at least in my subjective assessment, I think are relevant to the energy transition. Most of them are in the mobility space, not directly in the energy space, but you know, it's all, it's all tied together at this point. Um, of those 10, five of them are OEMs, manufacturers of electric or fuel cell electric vehicles of one sort or another. So Nicolau is the first, and that's the only one that's actually been completed of these 10 but in addition to Nikola, we have Fisker Automotive, Canoe, Hylion, Lordstown Motors, um, all in that category. Apart from the EV OEMs, um, two battery technology companies have announced that they are going to SPAC. EOS Energy Storage uh, and QuantumScape, different kinds of battery technology, but they're both battery technology companies. We have two LiDAR companies. LiDAR um, is the is a, is a kind of sensor um, That is, you know, used for a bunch of different applications, but especially for autonomous vehicles. So a lot of these are being sold into the coming autonomous vehicle world. Two of those companies, Velodyne and Luminar, announced that they're going to SPAC. And then finally, um, Desktop Metal, which is an additive manufacturing company. And, uh, you know, that's not... Necessarily directly an energy company or a mobility company, but there's a a pretty strong decarbonization angle to additive manufacturing. It's sort of electrification and decentralization of, of manufacturing and supply chains. So I count all to- ten of those as being, you know, within the universe of things that we talk about and that I spend time on.
0: And all ten of these companies in the last few months have announced an intent to get acquired by a SPAC. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So this is like you know. If this
1: if these had been normal IPOs, we would have been saying, "Wow, twenty twenty, what a year for climate tech IPOs!" If you count all ten of these, like when's the last time we had ten in a given year? Um, and this has all happened in the last what four or five months? Uh, so it is notable for sure.
0: Okay, so when I was an editor and a writer regularly at Green Tech Media, and I worked with our former editor in chief Eric Wessoff we would always have the IPO watch. Eric would keep this list about what companies are primed for an IPO every year, and they were generally companies that people knew about. Eric was pretty good at finding you know, maybe non-obvious choices, but most of them were obvious choices. Now, I look at this list. I only know five of these companies. Most Three of them are transportation companies. One of them, EOS, is a storage company. But I don't know the other five. I don't know if that says that I'm missing out on something, or if there's frothiness here, and there's a lot of attention on companies that, you know, may not be doing a lot. So you actually dug through where revenue stands for a lot of these companies. Um, What did you find?
1: Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about going public is you have to start releasing information publicly. So I pulled all the filings for for these 10 companies. Um, And I mean, First, to your point about not knowing these companies, I think if you were in any one of these individual spaces and spending time in them, you would know about them. Um, so they wouldn't be totally unknown to you. But as we will discuss, you know, I think if you had been doing an IPO watch, generally, you would be expecting that most of the companies on your IPO watch list would be commercial. They would have revenue. They would have product. Um, they would have... You know, they'd be selling. Um, that is not true of most of the companies that are spacking here. So, of the of the ten of them. Only one really has meaningful commercial revenue this year, and that's Velodyne, the LiDAR company. They're sort of like the 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 um, incumbent in the LiDAR space, actually. They have the lowest growth of anybody on this list. So they're sort of an exception. They have $102 million in revenue that they expect to do in 2020. With the exception of them, nobody has any meaningful revenue. Um, five of the 10 are fully pre-revenue, $0 in revenue this year. Um, a few of them have a little bit of revenue. You know, Hylian is going to Make a million dollars this year. EOS three million. Desktop Metal will make twenty. They have the next most. But you know the context of an IPO, um, the revenue figures for twenty twenty are, you
0: know, tiny. So then, what makes these companies attractive?
1: I I don't want to group them all together too closely. Like they're all different from each other, and some of them are really interesting and unique and totally differentiated. However, what they do share in common is that they expect to be, they're sort of at the, they think they're at this inflection point now where they're very close to commercialization. They expect revenue to show up and, you know, sales to show up within, depending on the company, the next one to four years. And then they expect an enormous ramp. So on average, the, the median revenue, For these 10 companies in 2020 is a million dollars the median revenue from their projections in 2024 is 1.2 billion dollars so this is the fundamental characteristic of these companies is that they're pitching a story wherein this is a moment where they are about to hit the market and basically take over the world
0: What's interesting here is that there are so many SPACs right now, and they're all looking for a limited number of acquisition targets. And if you're one of these companies that are pre-revenue, you can actually come to the table and negotiate a deal, negotiate a price, unlike you would if you embark on a traditional IPO process. So for some of these companies, maybe some that are lesser known, that don't even have revenue yet, they, they might have a fairly powerful seat at the table, or at least a better seat at the table. I do think that it it, it it is a very
1: attractive option for a lot of these companies, um, but it's attractive for one of two possible reasons, which gets to the sort of heart of this big question around SPACs at least for this category of companies, I mean, I do want to add a disclaimer. There are probably a bunch more SPACs coming, and I, I suspect some of the future SPACs are going to look different profile-wise. Like, they're not all going to be pre-revenue. Some are going to be companies that are well-established and look more like the companies you would have put on your IPO list before. That said, with this kind of company, it's it's attractive either, scenario one, um, You have been around for a number of years. You've raised actually a lot of capital to fund a a relatively capital-intensive business in the private markets. Um, Your investors are somewhat fatigued you will need to continue to raise a lot of capital to bring your product to market, and you're having a hard time in the private markets continually getting a higher valuation. But a SPAC comes along and says, actually, we think we can value you above your last round valuation. We think the public markets are going to love you. Um, It's a new source of capital. And in the process of the SPAC, um, plus potentially this this pipe that I mentioned before, we could put a lot of cash on your balance sheet so that you are certain to be able to spend the next couple of years building your business if you think this is going to be a big success. You're the next Tesla. That's uh, that's the sort of negative version, right? Because that is an indication that this is like an escape hatch for companies that otherwise would have struggled. The positive version is uh, they are the next Tesla, and. You know the SPAC process allows them to raise capital more efficiently, um, and once they're a public company, certainly to raise capital at a lower cost than they would if they were a private company now. And it just happens to be that the public markets now are are open to a long term vision in a way that they were not before, where they were focused on, on you know quarterly earnings. Now the real test is not does the SPAC get done. The real test comes afterwards um, in at least a couple of chunks. The first is that, you know, the insiders, everybody who had invested pre-SPAC and the pipe investors, they're all their shares are all locked up for some period of time. And it usually varies somewhere between like six and 12 months, depending on the performance of the stock. But there's a point that comes when that lockup ends and they have to decide whether to, to hold or sell. Um, that is one key moment because that is a bunch of, you know, uh, knowledgeable institutional investors who decide whether at that point they believe the prices is, is overpriced or not, and then longer term, right? Once these companies become public companies, now they're public companies. They have to report everything that everybody else does to the SEC. They are uh, they're reporting quarterly, and so you know you have to keep telling a story that is pretty exciting if you. Continually are not delivering revenue or product. And so the test will come over time when we find out whether these companies hold up in the public markets or whether they end up being kind of zombies.
0: Coming up in a little bit, we're going to talk about specific companies and sectors where there's a lot of SPAC activity. And we'll also ask what it all means for clean tech. First, a word about our supporters. We're brought to you by Schneider Electric, the leader of digital transformation in energy management and automation, Schneider Electric is pioneering the development of modular and scalable microgrids. Microgrids are not a single technology, but rather a combination of proven technologies that can meet the needs of divergent regions, small or large. Check out Schneider Electric's webinar on Green Tech Media called Modular and Scalable Microgrids in the New Energy Landscape. To learn more about how microgrids can be built quickly, and customized to the power needs of specific communities and municipalities. That is on November 12th, and we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. We are also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is a global leader in intelligent solar tracking systems, software, and services. During the time it takes to listen to this podcast, Next tracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems and power plants around the globe. And it is actually doing really interesting stuff with that data. It complements its TrueCapture smart tracker control system and its software that creates higher yields and lower operations and maintenance costs provides solar plant operators a valuable tool to protect their assets during hailstorms, hurricanes, heavy snow, and other extreme weather events. Find out more at nexttracker.com We haven't gotten to all your stats you've collected, Shale. You got any more for us that are telling? Um, I think actually a telling, before we start talking about individual
1: companies, I think a telling thing to do is to just run through the median company um, for every key stat. So this is, doesn't represent an individual company. It was a median across a bunch of dis- statistics. So y- your median of these 10 companies, um, like I said, $1 million in revenue this year, $1.2 billion in expected revenue in 2024. The valuation that you are getting at SPAC is $1.8 billion. Now, worth noting, that's just the valuation at the moment when you SPAC, then you're a public company, and who knows where it goes. Nikola is your classic example of a Going totally haywire in their case in a positive direction. Their enterprise value was 3.3 billion. Um, The the equity value after the SPAC was 4 billion. You know, they're currently, (laughs) it's volatile right now because they're in the middle of a fight with an organization called Hindenburg Research, which just released a report basically saying the whole thing is a scam, but they're still trading at this moment above 12 billion. Um, But the average here is 1.8 billion. You have raised $250 million in the private markets, so you have been building a pretty capital-intensive business already, um, but you are still getting a positive return. All of your previous investors, if the SPAC goes through and the price holds up, um, all of your previous investors are still getting a, a pretty good return. Um, you also are burning $64 million this year in EBITDA, but you're expecting by 2024 you will be making money earning about 150 million. So it's a really, um, it's just a, it's a, a big, bold bet with, with what should be highly differentiated technology is what, what makes all these companies similar. But the challenge is, you know, you're, you're leaving it to the public markets and, and scarily to retail investors in some cases to decide, let's just say of these 10, you know, there's, there's two that are going to be wild success stories, uh, but there's a bunch that are also going to be total failures. And so, you know, do we trust public market investors to to
0: make that call? So then let's stop talking about these companies as one group. Let's talk about some of them individually or across a specific sector. Let's talk about the automotive OEMs, the the EV OEMs you mentioned that it's been pretty volatile for nikola motor company who else who else is on this list
1: i mean you know one of the more intriguing ones on this list is a company called canoe um
0: who which i don't know by the way
1: yeah it's interesting i mean they they're they're known in the electric vehicle world they've been somewhat stealthy they've um you know, tried to create a really sexy brand, but it's not a consumer brand yet. Mm-hmm. They have a unique electric vehicle skateboard platform um, that they're very excited about. They have partnership with Hyundai. Uh, a lot of these, you know, have have some kind of a partnership with a. Um, a large OEM as well. The thing that makes Canoe kind of unique is that they're intending to pursue exclusively a subscription model strategy. So you will not be able to buy a Canoe electric vehicle. You will only be able to subscribe to it, which is an interesting trend in the uh, sort of vehicle purchasing world in general, the trend towards subscription-based ownership or lack thereof. Um, So that's one thing that makes them sort of unique. But then you've also got uh, like, Fisker, right? Which I sh- I'm sure you have heard of, right? Because they've, they they're sort of, they may actually be one of the wilder ones on this list, to be honest. So, this is one of the challenges for these companies is that say you're totally legit, you're competing against uh, other companies that have perhaps a more storied history. Am, am I right, Steven? The Fisker is one of the ones you know?
0: Oh, yes. Fisker is well known. Um, Fisker filed for bankruptcy in 2013 after getting a DOE loan guarantee and was developing this car called the Karma. Uh, They just blew through cash. They couldn't create a car that people wanted to buy or that was cheap enough for people to buy. So the company couldn't make it work. Tesla blew ahead of them. Uh, But they were one of the, you know, they were one of the early electric car companies that set the market on fire, you know, similar to Tesla. Right, they have come out of bankruptcy now.
1: They still have not produced a vehicle and sold it, but they're spacking or they're t- they're trying to spack. Um, they also have the probably the craziest uh, revenue projections of anybody on here. They will earn zero dollars in revenue in twenty twenty. Their forecast for twenty twenty four is ten point six billion dollars. That's twice what anybody else is forecasting for twenty twenty. It's it's you know hard to believe. So that's a so that's a challenging one, right? Which which I think is a real problem because some of these companies at least in my opinion are actually pretty interesting and could be like pretty revolutionary, but uh you know, if you're looking for my editorializing, like some of them like Fisker, it's sort of hard to stomach.
0: Right, I think this has more to do with the fact that investors want to be on the ground floor of the next Tesla than it is about anything particularly great about Fisker.
1: Yes, 100%. And I think that is why well, it's not a coincidence that five of these 10 companies are electric vehicle OEMs, right? Um, that That is absolutely a driving factor is like the desire to be on the ground floor for the next Tesla. And now you could say the next Nikola. I mean, Nikola may collapse, but at least at the moment today, Nikola looks like a wild SPAC success story. Um, so now you've got potentially two examples for the time being.
0: Can we just say that like, I think there's a very powerful case still to be made that Tesla's got some pretty extraordinary problems ahead of it. I mean, that company has extremely high levels of debt. Um, You know, it's not always pulling in a profit. Um, Tesla is a very impressive company that has truly moved the market and has created a whole new class, automotive class. So I really respect what Musk has done at Tesla. But like, there is definitely a powerful case to be made that they are, you know, teetering financially, or they they have a lot of vulnerabilities financially. So you have this class of investors wanting to invest in the next Tesla. But like, I don't even think that you can necessarily say that Tesla is this wild financial success story.
1: Well, it is for shareholders, at least for the moment, right? (laughs) I mean, and that's what people are looking at. Is like it, it, it which makes you worry obviously about the whole thing being a bit of a bubble starting with Tesla and then flowing down. And I really don't want to get into the Tesla debate because I've seen what happens when people wade into it. but like that's what what people are looking at when they're saying I want to invest in the next Tesla you know it partially I'm sure is like yeah, I want the next company that looks like Tesla, but it's also just like I want a share price that does what Tesla's share price has done.
0: Let's turn to the battery companies now. we got two battery companies on the list. Who are they? Yeah, so there's
1: EOS Energy Storage, which is a, a novel battery chemistry for stationary storage applications, you know, supposed to be, at least they claim it is cheaper than lithium ion. Um, that one's actually the smallest back on this list. You know, even if they make it out, they're going to be a, a pretty small cap publicly traded company. I think it's it's a little less interesting than QuantumScape, which is the other one. QuantumScape has been at it for 10 years developing what they hope is going to be the first solid state battery. Um the application here is primarily in the automotive context, so it's also EV related, but it's basically, you know, if if you can build what they intend to build, um, it can totally change the curve on EV adoption because it will be a much, much more energy dense battery. You can enable super fast charging very easily. You can get much, much longer EV ranges. And so all the problems that we face with electric vehicles right now, um, many of them would be solved if you had... A a solid state battery like what QuantumScape is trying to build, but they've been you know at it for ten years. Um, They've raised about five hundred million dollars already prior to the SPAC in order to do it. Um, Their biggest the biggest sort of feather in their cap that they've got at the moment, a proof point for anybody who's on the outside and can't see the technology, is that Volkswagen is investing heavily in it. Volkswagen, of course, is like probably the most aggressive on the transformation to, to electric vehicles. They've invested a couple hundred million dollars themselves in QuantumScape and sort of blessed the technology. They expect it to be in their vehicles at some point in the future. So that's what QuantumScape has going for them. They expect to come to market um, in vehicles really in 2025. So if you're investing today, you know, it's going to be a, they're, they're getting a $3.3 billion enterprise value in the SPAC, and, um, the equity value, once you add the cash, will be you know four and a half billion dollars, and they'll come to market in twenty twenty five. So it's a it's a really good example of like there is some validation there, um, and it is really promising. And if it works, I think you can paint a, a good picture of this being an incredibly valuable company. But there's no question that there's still a fair amount of risk here.
0: So both different types of challengers to conventional lithium ion batteries, both ground floor plays hoping that they will revolutionize the battery space in some way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to define a company like QuantumScape as ground floor when they've been around for, for a decade already, right? You're you're like, you've been climbing up the stairs for 10 years. And I guess their argument would be they're about to step on the elevator.
0: So you've done a lot of research into these companies and what they've disclosed thus far and what their current history is. What about the SPACs investing in these companies, so presumably the folks who are putting the teams together that run these spacs and go out looking for acquisitions have some sector level knowledge, and there are a lot of spacs now. They're lo- like I said, they're looking at a limited number of acquisition targets. Um, so in some cases, spacs are competing for <laughs> investable companies. But what we saw in you know the 2006 to 2010 timeframe was that a lot of investors many of whom were very smart tech investors, didn't really understand clean tech that well, and they invested billions and billions of dollars into companies that didn't have the right business models, and that was the result of the first clean tech bubble. Are we seeing something similar today? What do we know about the SPACs that leads us to believe that either they know what they're doing or that they're just kind of looking for potential ground floor companies and they're not really sure where to look?
1: I'm not the expert here, but it seems to vary somewhat, right? So the, que- the, the question is, who's the SPAC sponsor? That's the, that's the, the person, the group who, um, you know, puts the back in the public markets, raises the capital for it, and then goes off and finds the acquisition target and, and takes that through the transaction. Um, and, you know, the credibility of the SPAC sponsor uh, does matter. And it's a factor that I think companies should be looking at if they're considering a SPAC or considering multiple SPACs. Uh, the credibility of the SPAC sponsor is not just about domain expertise, though. I think it is also can they uh, tell a compelling story? Can they raise additional capital from other investors? I mean, that's those are the things that sort of determine whether a SPAC goes through or not. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we do have a wide range of different types of SPAC sponsors, um, and I think some of them absolutely have deep domain expertise and some of them definitely do not and it's another factor that you know should go into an equation of like is this a is this one of the ones that's going to work or one of the ones that's going to fail
0: is this a promising vehicle for clean tech generally do you think
1: i think so i worry a little bit that this first wave of companies you know i, I like i said i don't without speaking about individual companies of this of this group of 10 for example you know there's a couple in here that I think are really interesting and there's a few that I would be pretty worried about and I don't really know what will happen in a couple of different scenarios one if you know a few of these companies do really turn out to be um, vaporware. I don't know how much that drags down the rest of them. Uh, and two, what just happens if the market takes a turn, right? Remember, this has all been happening in a pretty strong bull market context. Like, if next year the economy turns out to be worse than is expected, and the overall market takes a big turn down, you know, even the 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 companies here that um, that have real potential, you know, they'll still be they'll still look different in the light of a a world where, you know, people are looking at EBITDA multiples um, on companies that here don't even have revenue. So I I worry about the first wave, but as a general phenomenon, I think, you know, there are a lot of hard tech, uh, climate-oriented companies that, you know, one of the traditional knocks on those companies is that they require a lot of capital. And, maybe that's not the best long-term fit for venture money. And though I don't always agree with that take in general, it's just great to have another avenue wherein these companies can raise the capital that they need to actually build the product and start selling it. So I I like that SPACs are out there. I like that they're, uh, they're an avenue for companies that have a compelling story to tell. We haven't even talked about the fact that there's, I think, a strong argument that companies in this bucket will do better on average, than other companies, because there is real demand in the public markets for climate solutions. I actually think that that seems to be a real thing. So I like that there's a class of investors, even if they are in the public markets now, that really want to invest in in climate positive stuff. But you know, w- we're going to know a lot more um, in late 2021 when all these investor lockup periods end, when the market holds up or it doesn't hold up, and when we're sitting on. What at that point will probably be a couple of dozen largely pre-revenue, relatively small cap public companies that are trying to solve some climate problem.
0: Right. And the big question is, does the story hold up? Because for a lot of these companies that are pre-revenue, they're not looking at any significant ramp up until the mid-2020s. And so will investors hang on to their story as long as they have for a company like Tesla, for example, because Tesla is all about the story.
1: Totally. Totally. Yep, and that's where that's where the Elon Musk effect and maybe the Trevor Milton effect uh, matters. Like you actually, if you are selling a story, you got to be able to continually tell a compelling story, and it's not just like the individual person, but you have to have a steady stream of progress that you can announce publicly and partnerships and announcements and you know. So we'll see how all these companies do once they get to that point.
0: All right. So my game plan is to pick one of these companies. Let's both get a Robinhood account. We'll talk about that company incessantly, puff up its stock price, and then you and I can take our gains and start our own SPAC. How does that sound?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a good plan.
0: The revolving door of finance. We could be part of the SPAC attack. All right, will you go turn on your air filter now?
1: Uh, yes, I would like nothing more than
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, folks. If you want to help us out, Go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Some awesome reviews there, and we really appreciate the steady drumbeat of support. You know, you can hit us both up on Twitter as well if you want to suggest ideas, and follow us at Green Tech Media for show notes. And we, we do a lot of reporting on the companies that we've been talking about, so you can find more on the market potential of these companies at Green Tech Media. And we will catch you very soon with Shell Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange. Conversations on the Future of Energy from Greentech Media.